welcome to this episode of Fintrepreneur. Super excited to have a good friend Wayne Palman from a firm on today's episode. Thanks for joining us. Um, and, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, obviously we're uh, in the space of BNPL just on the B2B side and you're the pioneer in Canada really for the B2C side. So I look forward to kind of comparing notes and thoughts on the space and this type of product. Before we get into too much detail on that, let's start as we often do in these, which is just kind of general background. Would love to kind of understand uh, your story and how you ultimately came to get into the space and you know perhaps where you are today and how you're thinking about it. Yeah, sounds good. And yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I'm trying to think where to start the story. I spent way too long in school. I have a PhD in international relations, which I don't, <laughs> I don't use that much. But I, uh, I, know I, that. Finally, I finally got a real job. My first job kind of after school was uh, at Bain & Company in consulting. I was living in the UK at the time and spent a few years there doing you know, the usual consulting stuff and then moved back to Canada with Bain during the financial crisis and worked for a little bit longer with Bain. And then I went into the private equity business for seven years with a Toronto-based private equity firm called TorqueWest Partners. And Wayne, are you originally from Toronto? No, I'm from Victoria originally. Okay, didn't know that. Yeah, cool. yeah. So I went to college in the States, did my grad school in the UK and started working over there. So I was I was outside of Canada for about 10 years, but always wanted to come back. And uh, my wife and I had a great opportunity to come back in 08 when she got a tenure track job at the U of T. She's a professor. So cool. But yeah, I worked at, at TorQuest for seven years and kind of partway through my time there, I started spending a lot of time on financial services. So, you know, non-bank lending areas of financial services, which is obviously a huge market, but where the banks don't dominate, right? There's these pockets that you can, you can have good businesses in in Canada. And so we had an investment thesis around that. I got to know a lot of businesses in Canada kind of in, in financial services. And one of, I spent one summer trying to acquire a point-of-sale lending business in Canada, which ultimately didn't close. But learned a ton about that model and how to think about it, how the economics worked, how the funding worked. And I always thought that was pretty cool. And then I always thought that if I had a chance to operate something, you know, as opposed to being a consultant or investor, I would love to try it. And so this opportunity cropped up in, I guess it was 2015, to basically take over running a, a small point of sale lending business in the healthcare space called HealthSmart Financial Services, which was a division of a larger company, very small. So long story short, I got involved as the CEO. I partnered with the two main shareholders. We spun it out of the mothership and started really growing it like a startup. So I was uh, employee number six. And from the beginning of 2016 to the beginning of 2021, we grew it to about 200 people. And along the way, went from healthcare to being like the first BNPL in Canada focused on retail and e-commerce. And then we ultimately sold it uh, in January of 21 to a firm. Yeah. You mentioned that you thought the point of sale model when you looked at it, when you were looking at that investment opportunity at TorQuest, that you thought it was a cool model. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Like what attracted you to it? Yeah. I think the biggest thing is, is you have this distribution through your merchant partners, right? So if your goal is to originate consumer loans, doing that from scratch direct to consumer is a very expensive and difficult proposition. But if you can do it through merchant partners, where they're bringing you to their customers at the point of sale as a payment method, you can get incredible distribution. 
especially if you tap into some really big merchant partners. And then the other thing is point of sale loans tend to perform better than just straight personal loans. You know, it's the customers aren't necessarily seeking credit for personal use there. They might be shopping for a TV or a couch or whatever it is. And they see this great installment payment offer at the point of sale and they go for it. It might even be interest-free, uh, which is the majority of our business. And so they take that, that option sort of opportunistically. It's not like they're out trying to like fill a financial hole in their lives. And so the, the receivables tend to perform better than other asset, than other classes of uh, consumer credit. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. If it's 0%, really anyone rational who's studied uh, finance and knows time yeah. value money should be taking the offer, right? And I think that's even more relevant in, in the uh, business space as well, Wayne, just in terms of like what they're purchasing, right? A company's not getting, you know, a bunch of cash to go, you know, do whatever with. This is really for inventory, for growth. There's a purpose to that purchase. And so that, that I think rings true as well in the B2B space. Yeah, definitely. I think that the dynamics are similar. You're helping either a person or a business accomplish a specific defined goal in terms of what they're using the proceeds for, as opposed to just, you know, general credit. Yeah. So Wayne, what, what do you think were the sort of the pros about being in healthcare specifically being in sort of one vertical and kind of what made you change into broadening that? Yeah. So, so when I say healthcare, I should define it, right? So it's larger purchases that you would still have to pay for privately in Canada. So, you know, dental treatments, uh, hearing aids, mobility devices, fertility treatments. In theory, that's a very large end market still in Canada. You know, many billions of dollars a year are spent privately on those types of things, even though we have a publicly funded healthcare system. And so when I first took over running the business, our first full year at it was 2016. And we thought, okay, no one's really tried to grow this business aggressively. There hasn't been a lot of sales efforts. Let's see how far we can get in the vertical that we're in. And you know, it's nice to have a focus as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> to know what you're shooting. And we did a pretty good job of growing the business that year. We, we doubled it, although off a small base. But we found is that once we had like the largest dental chain, the largest fertility group, you know, it got very fragmented. And, right. and we realized that we were all going to be old and gray before we had a big business, even <laughs> though in theory, the market was big. And so it was really at the end of 2016 that we said, look, we have a solid working installments platform, not a credit card platform, an installments platform. And there is an application for this in retail, which is a, a much larger end market with big merchant partners. Mm -hmm. And so we started moving that direction at the end of 16. And then we immediately realized the best application for our product would be e-commerce, where a simple, straight, easy application process installment loan works really well. It's an alternative to the credit card or private label credit card model. And no one was doing it in Canada. And it was working in the US with like with a firm. It was working in, in Australia with Afterpay. And so we quickly said, hey, we should be the ones to do this. And we went and lined up some what we thought were good merchant partners almost before we built it, like Casper and ND mattresses. And we built it through the spring of 2017 and launched in the in the summer of 17. And that was the inflection point for our business. Like if we did one good thing the whole time, it was entering the e-commerce installments business at that time. So you just mentioned that you kind of got those partners in the mix even before you had a product. Did I hear that right? That's right. How'd you pull that off? That's awesome. 
Well, you know, we wanted to make sure we were building the right thing in the right direction. You know, at that time, we didn't have a ton of resources to engineer a whole bunch of stuff and have it not pan out, right? So we we wanted to, to be pretty lean, stay very close to the customer. We connected with the people running Casper and ND and say, hey, it seems like you probably want this product in Canada. And they said, yes, we do. Like this installment payments for mattresses in the US is a big thing. We want it for Canada. How come no one's doing it? Are you doing? Are you going to do it for us? Yeah. And so we really came to them at the right moment and sort of built in the direction of what they needed initially. And so we had a pretty tight sort of initial product that played right into what they wanted, which was a six-month interest-free installment plan. And then we built everything from there. But those were our two launch partners in, in 2017. That's amazing. You know, you mentioned earlier that you sold the business. What was that like? And how do you, you know, see the world today? And, and what do you focus on today? Yeah, I can sort of give the a brief, you know, the brief history of the sale. So we didn't really intend to sell the business when we did. We had pretty good momentum. We were feeling pretty good about things. The pandemic was initially a scary experience as it was for many people. We were really worried that retail sales were going to go off a cliff. None of the customers were going to pay us back and our lenders were going to take off on us, right? So we <laughs> I didn't sleep for like 3 weeks. Yeah. And then after we got over that initial shock, which I'm sure you guys well remember. Yeah, definitely. Uh, then it was like, wait a second, this is like, this is good for us. We've got, we, you know, e-commerce is taking off and we're totally geared towards e-commerce and the categories that we're in are on fire, right? So home goods, home electronics, sporting goods, all of that stuff was taking off. So our, our volumes like for a couple of weeks and then they took off. We didn't see really almost any consumer stress, partly because the government was so quick with support to the consumer. And then the lenders kind of freaked out for a couple of weeks and then they got comfortable and we just sort of drove on. And so we were in, by sort of May, June of 2020, we were in good shape. And all of the other BNPLs around the world, I think had a similar experience. And the publicly traded ones, like their stock hit the floor and they went straight up, right? Like you after pay and whatnot. And so what happened, after sort of that initial COVID shock is we had a bunch of inbound M&A interest. So a bunch of the foreign big fintech players were reaching out to us, some of whom we sort of knew already, like it wasn't a first time. And then a couple of the Canadian banks as well. All of a sudden we were, you know, in demand as this, as the Canadian BNPL leader. And what we realized is Canada was like next on a bunch of companies' roadmaps to enter. And so they looked at the market and said, oh, PayBright's the leader. We should just buy them. And this was all happening around the same time. And so I went to the board and we, we debated it. And I basically said, look, if this is our moment where a lot of people want to buy the company, we really ought to listen to that, even though this wasn't the plan. And so long story short, we hired an advisor in sort of late spring of 20, went through the process over the summer and the fall, and then a firm rose to the top. Uh, we announced the deal at the beginning of December of 2020 and closed in in January of 21. Yeah, it must have been such an exciting time. Yeah, it was wild. It was very exciting. It's hard to wrap your head around as the CEO when you've been heads down building for five years to all of a sudden be focused on a completely different path. And of course, as you're going through those conversations, there's only a small group of the management team that that can be in the loop, right? You can't have everybody talking about this at the water cooler. So it was this like, thing that was taking up a huge amount of our time, but almost nobody outside of the top half dozen or so people knew about it for most of the time. So 
Yeah. yeah. It was a really interesting time. That's intense. Wayne, I'm really curious about what, what happens after an, uh, an acquisition like that for you personally, right? So like you mentioned, you were the CEO of Paybright, you know, you kind of leading the way there. Now you, you know, you're joining a much bigger company that just acquired you guys. What was that transition like for you? You know, what, what kind of changes happened? Yeah. I mean, I think in our case, the thesis was that we would integrate Paybright into a firm pretty completely, right? It was because we're in almost exactly the same business. Every function that we had, a firm had. So the idea was Paybright would get absorbed. Obviously, the, the Paybright team would continue to spend most of their time on Canada, but it wasn't like we were some other adjacent business that was going to operate standalone. And so the, the integration process started pretty much from day one. And my job was to continue leading the growth of the Canadian business and also facilitating the integration. And I would say, in hindsight, it all worked out pretty well. Like we kept growing the business really well. We doubled the business again in the first year, which obviously a firm was super happy about to buy something and have it double. Wow. Um, and then the integration, like all integrations are are bumpy and take time for people to adjust to. And you've got communication and cultural stuff. And then it's all over Zoom as well, right? At that time. But I think by sort of like September, October of 2021, we were in a pretty good spot. Everybody was settled. Everybody knew which way we were going. And then one thing that was a really sort of galvanizing, focusing factor was we launched the Apple account in August of 2021, which was one of the largest financing launches in the history of Canada. It was a huge effort for us to pull off. And so working arm in arm with Paybright and Affirm teams to deliver that was like just the kind of like war experience that you need. I, I don't like to use those analogies because it's not really hard. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like a really intense period of time to deliver something meaningful. That was like a great, great thing that happened. Wayne, isn't Apple also rolling out their own installment product? They are, but you have to kind of parse it a little bit to understand what they're doing and what they're not doing. So, okay. so what they're doing is mainly in the US. There have been nothing announced outside the US. And they have kind of have two things. One is the Apple Card, which came out a few years ago, the thing that they do in partnership with Goldman Sachs. And they do things like their iPhone financing program on the Apple Card in the US. And then the thing that they, meant, they announced more recently is they're going to do the pay in four model, the four biweekly interest-free installments within Apple Pay. So if you're paying with, with Apple Pay, one of the ways that you can complete that purchase or that transaction is by splitting it into four bi-weekly interest-free payments. None of that competes with what we're doing in Canada. And the Apple Pay style installment product is different than what we do, where it's it's fully integrated into a merchant site as part of the checkout experience, if that makes sense. So, so, so if I'm using Apple Pay to pay for anything, I can use the pay for product. You're not necessarily buying from Apple. Yeah, there may be some restrictions around it that I'm, you know, I don't know the details of that, but they really see it as another way to to settle within Apple Pay. Understood. So I sort of put it in the category, and Apple might sort of dispute my characterization of it. I sort of put it in the category of like post-purchase BNPL versus like checkout BNPL. So if right. you think about like it's not exactly the same as this, but if you think about what CIBC has done in Canada, right, with the PaySit product, so you make a purchase on your credit card, it's a big purchase, you go into your CIBC app and you say, I want to split that purchase over 12 payments. That's all happening after the purchase and that's great. And 
this post-purchase BNPL, any billions of dollars will go through this. But it's quite different than what like Affirm and Klarna and others do, which is we're integrated into a merchant site as our own payment method. We're featured throughout the customer journey on the product display page where the full price and the installment price is shown. And we're working with merchants on like joint marketing and customer acquisition. That's a different BNPL business model. And the two models conflict and compete much less than you would imagine. Interesting. I put the PayPal product in that sort of post-purchase as well. Not exactly, but what we have found is, you know, PayPal launched its BNPL product to great fanfare not that long ago. They're doing lots of volume through it, but we're not aware of any impact on our business that I can tell, certainly the part of the business that I run from them having done that. So, you know, BNPL has multiple pieces to it that you kind of have to parse. Yeah. So our conversation is kind of moving into present day. What do you see as the kind of main challenges and opportunities for the space today? So I think, you know, I think that the sector is going through a bit of a test right now. And you could hear it in in the discussion in like the firm's recent earnings call, right? People are focused on understanding how BNPL players are going to manage credit, uh, how they're going to manage funding costs. And we're in a time in the world right now when funding costs and credit losses are having a tendency to go upwards at the same time. In addition, with the the equity markets being down, some players that aren't well capitalized may have access to capital problems. I don't think that applies to us. So it's it's an interesting time. But when you step back, like the demand from merchants and consumers for the product itself is super strong. And it's hard to find any forecast that doesn't suggest that the volume of BNPL transaction isn't going to increase massively over the next few years. So, you know, I think we're pretty excited about it. We think we're in a good spot, but I think all of the BNPL players have to prove that they can operate through the environment that we're in right now. Makes sense. Uh, yeah, demand is high. I recently uh, used uh, Paybright for my Peloton purchase. Nice. Uh, it's getting delivered uh, this week. Uh, that was my first time uh, using it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, the guys in the store did a good job of pitching it and explaining it and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, silently in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, I know the guy who actually built this thing for Canada. It's pretty cool. Um, but awesome. uh, yeah, go ahead. Eli. That's a great, great segue, Dave. I was actually thinking about that in terms of you said in store. What was the focus for you guys in terms of going omni channel, being across multiple different platforms? And is there a really a bigger focus on the e commerce side still? Or how do you look at that? Yeah, so I think most BNPL players started in e-commerce because it's, in some respects, it's easier, right? You get plugged into a a merchant's checkout, you integrate with whatever their e-commerce platform is, you get customer volume right away. You you absolutely have to manage credit and fraud and there's lots of complications to it. But in terms of the distribution and the scalability of it, e-commerce is easier in some sense. When you get into stores, there's you know the store associates, there's how does the customer apply? How does the customer find out about it? Are they doing it through the point of sale terminal? Are they doing it through an app? What happens if they're declined? Is that, is that embarrassing in a public environment? All this stuff that right. in-store financing industry has been struggling with for years. But you kind of have to figure it out because what we found is that once you've penetrated e-commerce, the retailers like a Hudson's Bay will be like, hey, that's great. But like 80% of our sales are still 
you know, in store. So what's your, what's the solution for that? So eventually you kind of have to get to it. And most of the BNPO players are, are now getting there and there's different ways that they're, they're going at it. You know, I think my perspective is an app with a virtual card in it is pretty important combined with, in some cases, integrations with merchants, point of sale systems and payment terminals. So you have to kind of be flexible about the distribution model there. But I firmly believe that as BNPL continues to grow, it's going to be a very omni-channel product. Interesting. Wayne, you built this business in Canada. Now you're part of a firm and now you're actually running international, right? So more than just Canada. How are you seeing, are there major differences in those other markets or is it pretty much rinse and repeat? It's definitely not rinse and repeat. (laughs) You know, some of the principles are the same, obviously, especially in terms, you can leverage some merchant relationships across countries, the basic aspects of, you know, the presentation to the customer and the checkout experience can be broadly similar, but where you start to get into complications and local differences are regulation. So, you know, I think we have a fairly simple regulatory environment in Canada for this compared to some other countries. So that's, that's a complication and not just sort of lending requirements, but like, you know, AML, KYC, financial crime sanctions, you you know, you have to be able to be compliant in every market with somewhat different rules and different data sources, right? Different consumers behave differently in different countries. And again, the data sources that you have to adjudicate that are different. And when you're entering a new market, you're just riding the learning curve from the beginning if you're entering organically. You know, and then you need, you know, brand awareness, all of the usual stuff. So it's rinse and repeat would be a very would be wonderful. <laughs> but it's not, it's not going to be like that. But you know, we've made a real commitment to international expansion and we're going to keep plugging away. And in our our uh earnings release last week, Max talked about our plans to build in the UK fiscal year, which we're excited about. Exciting. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think one of the, the differentiators that we're super excited about in the business space is that. We have this foundation of, of merchant growth that we're building upon for Tabit, whereby you know it's you know 12, 13 years of actual underwriting experience and really understanding small businesses and so on, so that we can actually get an approval rate to a point where it's attractive for merchants. I think that's being a little bit underestimated in, in our space by some new entrants that are hoping to sort of just blast the market and really have loose underwriting criteria. Was that something that happened a lot in the B2C space as well? Or was it pretty straightforward? Well, I mean, I think during the really highly competitive times when, you know, capital was freely available and there was a huge battle to dominate new markets in like 2018, 19, 20, especially in the pay and for business and especially in Europe and the United States, it was such a war that it's like anything, not so, a firm didn't really get into this too much, but others did. You know, anything goes on pricing, anything goes on approval rates, yeah. just the business, get the volume and we'll sort it all out later. That is moderating quite a bit right now in this different capital environment. And it, things got pretty crazy in some segments of BNPL. I'm a believer that you just have to find the right balance between making the merchants happy on the approval rate, but protecting yourself on risk. And if if merchants are so focused on those incremental approval rate points and, you know, want you to take risks that you don't think you can safely take, like you have to be very careful unless you have, you know, unlimited gobs of capital to, you know, paper over the losses. 
Yeah, and I think that's a pretty short-sighted view on the merchant's part, right? Like you you want a BNPL partner that's running a sustainable program. Otherwise, you're just going to have to, you know, switch providers or something when they inevitably realize I can't keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. And I think when, it, when it's a more normal sort of disciplined competitive environment, it works the way it's supposed to. It's when things get really irrational and there's a market participant that's willing to approve everybody, let's say, that's when things get a little crazy. Yeah. So Eli segued a little bit there in that last question over to the B2B side. Wayne, I know you're broadly familiar with what we're up to at Tabit, you know, building this for business-to-business transactions. What are your thoughts broadly on this? You know, there's obviously been a bit more attention towards the B2B BNPL side. Uh, you know, are you watching it? How do you think about it? And what would your advice be to us at this point? Yeah, so I've, I've believed for years that it's a real market need on the B2B side. You know, when we started working with partners in the past, like let's say a Samsung or others, you know, one question we would get would be, okay, this is working really well with consumers, average order value of, you know, 1500 bucks or a couple thousand dollars. But, you know, we have business customers who want to buy a few dozen laptops or, or, you know, 10 phones. And, you know, how do we, how can we handle that? How do we like, this is a big part of our business. How do we serve this? And we would have to say, look, our entire expertise and underwriting model and funding sources are all set up around individual consumer transactions. Like we don't have a great solution for this right now, unless a a small business owner, you know, makes this purchase on their personal credit. And in which case we don't really, you know, we don't really know in a sense. And, but we, what we can't, we're not set up to underwrite commercial credit and larger transactions because that's not our, our area of expertise, which is what you you've been doing for years. So I think it's an opportunity. And I think, you know, some of the B2C players may get into it over time. But as you know, once you've got a strength and a lane in one business, you know, moving adjacently is not necessarily that easy. So I think that's why there's been this proliferation in other countries of B2B BNPL players, because the opportunity is there and it's not being served. Yeah, it's definitely a very different underwriting model. Yes. Uh, And, you know, I think that consumers generally, you can kind of look at them through a lens where, you know, there's not a ton of difference from one to the other, you know, a consumer has an income level, they have a credit score, you know, with a business, they have like vastly different business models and cash cycles and margins and cost structures. And you kind of have to understand whether they can repay you. And so you need, you need a model that is mature and has a lot of data across a lot of industries and looks at a lot of data. So it's a different beast for sure. Because of that, do you see there being likely more more partnerships between B2C and B2B, BNPL players? How do you sort of see them? They obviously work with a lot of the same merchants, not not entirely, but there's some overlap on merchants. So how do you see that playing out, I guess? Yeah, I think there is real potential for partnerships. Like if you have a, to your point, if you have a B2C BNPL player that's been around for five years and has thousands of merchant partners, and some of those merchant partners are asking for this, there is sort of a natural alignment there of, of bringing in a B2B partner. And if I'm not mistaken, there's been maybe one or two partnerships like that in Europe. Yeah, but Klarna. It, it makes sense. Yeah, Klarna, I think, has maybe yeah. done something. So, I mean, I think it makes sense. I think it makes sense. Wayne, this was, thank you for taking the time, first of all. We appreciate having you as a connection and we, uh, you know, the opportunity to pick your brain on a few things and you be, being willing to join us today. So this has been great. We usually always end these podcasts by asking, you know, you're looking 10 years ahead. What would you be pumped to look back and say, hey, this has happened in the fintech space or, you know, BNPL or fintech, you know, what would you be excited to have happened by then? Well, 
It's a great question. I think if I sort of keep it to our world and BNPL, I think one thing that at a firm we want to see happen is our sector and our way of doing business grow at the expense of more traditional forms of retail credit that we just think are bad for consumers. Like this is actually the whole mission of a firm. And I would say Paybright probably shared the same mission from day one, which is the forms of retail credit that have dominated, at least in North America, are card-based. So what does that mean? It means on the one hand, you have this super convenient thing that's accepted everywhere, uh, and that's great. But it also means a financial instrument that has huge flaws for the consumer, right? Where you're, you can refinance your debt almost forever. You make these minimum payments. You carry a balance. You pay 20 to 30% interest on that. I've heard Max before describe it as it's like a payday loan, except just with a lower interest rate. And if you compare that to our product, which is no deferred interest, no compounding interest, no revolving account, no late fees. Every time somebody makes a purchase with our product, instead of on a credit card, or especially on a, on a retail credit card, like a store card, which have these nasty features, we think the consumer is coming out ahead and the world's in a better place. So if we could have you know, millions of transactions a year going through our type of payment method and it reducing customers' pain with credit cards and store cards, we think that would be just awesome. And I find it humorous that there is, or ironic in a sense, that there's so much concern about what are the ills of BNPL. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you think about it from an angle, suppose the way that we had always used retail credit was simple installment plans where you could never owe more than it said at the beginning of the contract, no late fees, no deferred interest, no compounding interest. That was how the world worked. And then somebody came along and said, hey, I've got this great product. You, It's a credit card, it's a card, and then you you use it and all the, all the purchases build up for a month. And then we send you an invoice, but we don't automatically debit you because we secretly don't want you to pay. And yeah. you, know, you can re- refinance your debt at 20 to 30% interest. And you make this minimum payment that means it takes like 11 years to pay it off. Like that, that would be laughed out of the room by, you know, media and the regulators. But that is, in fact, the default today. And everyone's just gotten used to it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I will argue with anybody that, that the BNPL that we do is far, far better for the consumer and society than credit cards. Yeah, that's fascinating. So although, although BNPL is becoming more widely known and a little bit more mature, from what you're saying, it seems like we're still really at the beginning of the consumer understanding and the media and so on, understanding how this is a better product than, you know, traditional credit cards. Yeah. And I think we're going to get there. I just think it's like any new product that sort of explodes onto the scene quickly. People want to understand it. There's a variety of views. You know, I think looking at the Canadian market, my view is that the more, you know, the media and and government sort of looks into it, the more comfortable they get when they actually understand how the product works. Uh, But that's sort of a natural, that's a natural evolution. But I think if we're, you know, let's say, I don't know, two, three, 4% of Canadian e-commerce goes through BNPL today, it's going to be 20, 30% in the future. That's good, provided the BNPL providers continue to build their products in a customer-friendly way. So do you see consumer BNPL as primarily displacing the credit card payment method? Or are you creating credit where none was being created before and you're just displacing, I guess, cash transactions? So some, I guess there's, there's some additional credit creation, but I think a lot of it is at the expense of credit cards, right? where people 
like the idea of, okay, I'm going to buy an iPhone. I'm going to pay over 24 months. There's no interest. There is no possibility for me to owe more than the original cost of the iPhone. I'm going to do that instead of put it on my credit card and hope I can pay it off or maybe get stuck carrying some balances. Like that is a substitute for a credit card transaction in many cases. And that's very customer friendly. And we think that's for the good. Yeah. Interesting sort of difference there with the B2B space. Like in our case, in some cases, we view our product as displacing, you know, traditional trade credit between a supplier and a buyer. But we'll see as we sort of really ramp up the business. But I think in in more cases than not, we're going to be actually creating new credit that wasn't being created. Transactions that were typically cash on demand with a small business buyer that just wasn't getting any credit. And so that's sort of an interesting difference in terms of what we're really displacing in the B2B space versus the B2C space. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You're sort of saying, here's a small business that that should have or deserves to have access to credit that they can't get for a number of the transactions they need to make. And we're confident in our underwriting, so let's give it to them. And so you're, whereas we're saying, at least in Canada, a whole lot of people have a credit instrument, which is a credit card, but we're saying there's a a better way. So yeah, I I sort of, I, I get what you're saying there. Yeah, it's interesting. There's these nuances when you get kind of deeper into it. Well, thanks a lot, Wayne. This was awesome. Lots of great conversation. Appreciate you taking the time and we'll be in touch for sure. It's going to be exciting to see the space play out. Yeah. Well, congrats on everything you're doing and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, this was Venturepreneur.